Welcome to episode 49 of Teach Me Tiger. Woo! To teach me tiger where we like to say we bring in our experty friends to teach us about stuff but this time it's just us melody it's just and us. liz liz melody and liz and we're presenting some true crime stories because we like everybody else right now or maybe everybody else forever love true crime love true crime love it do you know what i was thinking and we're doing like a little ode to my favorite murder yeah we are like a naked ode, like we're just coming right out and saying it for this episode. We're basically copying them because we love them. Yeah, it's an homage. It's an it's homage. A, they say that copying is the highest form of flattery. Yeah, we're going to flatter them a lot today by directly copying what they do. <laughs> we're going to flatter them so hard. <laughs> <laughs> flattery, flattery, flattery. Do you think they're listening? They're obviously listening. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure that that's all they do is listen to other people's podcasts where we uh, copy them, where people copy yeah. them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, and we have internet connections, which make us experts, right? Yeah. Oh, I'm an expert. I'm an expert on the murder I'm going to talk about today. My brother in law, Carl, calls this type of podcast nice people reading Wikipedia. I mean, that's pretty much what it is, <laughs> right? But I swear I researched outside of Wikipedia at least a little bit. I didn't even look at Wikipedia for this. Whoa. Yeah. Y- you are legit. I legitimately did not even look at Wikipedia. Good for you. I I had because I'm always so busy or at least maybe I maybe I'm not really busy but I am just a frantic person who feels like they're always busy. That's also possible. Mm. Um so I did research that would allow me to do other things at the same time. So right. like listening to a podcast. Yeah. 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 So I'm going to I'm going to tell I'm going to give some shout outs to all the other people who did the research and I just listened to it. <laughs> who are you uh telling us about Liz? I'm going to talk about the Zodiac Killer. Mm -hmm. And because this is like an ode to my favorite murder, Karen on My Favorite Murder talks about the Zodiac Killer occasionally, but they've never actually covered it on their show. And she often talks about how one of her favorite crime movies is the movie Zodiac by David Fincher, which talks about the Zodiac Killer. It's one of my favorite movies, too. I've seen it about 20 gazillion times. So Um, that makes you Karen and that makes me Georgia. Yeah, pretty much. I yep. am the ditzy one. <laughs> oh, I don't mean Ooh. that. <laughs> well, oh, I, that I mean, <laughs> I mean, you're not wrong uh, in terms of uh, that personality trait coming through in Georgia. But um, yeah, no. So that's I'm doing the Zodiac Killer. And those are the reasons why. Cool. Yeah. What about you? I'm talking about Charles Starkweather. Your dad. So get this. My uncle's legal name is Charles Starkweather. You mean Woody? Yeah, Charles Woodruff Starkweather. He is not the murderer, Charles Starkweather, but I have some great stories for you. Oh, Uh, God, I can't wait. Yes, because he was the same age in 1958 as Charles Starkweather, and he was on like 
winter break or something at the time and didn't go home for that break. So he was sort of at large at the time that Charles Starkweather was on his killing spree. Whoa. So, mm-hmm. I bet you that gave him some problems. It They'd did. Be like, <laughs> be like, I'm, I'm Charles Starkweather and be like, get the fuck out of here. I can't wait to tell you about it. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. I can't wait to hear about it. So I think I should do a quick disclaimer. Okay. Which is to say that this episode talks about violent crime and murder and listeners should practice yep. discretion if listening to this. And if that subject matter will upset you in a way that's unenjoyable, some people like to get a little upset, but if that's going to like make you upset in a bad way, don't listen. <laughs> Skip this yeah. one. I listen to a lot of true crime podcasts. Well, I listen to a couple, mostly my favorite murder, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And um, oftentimes JM just leaves or I turn it off when he's in the room because I really like it, but he can't really handle it. He, it's upsetting to him. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, should we say what my favorite murder is? I know it's one of the most popular podcasts like in the world, but in case any of the listeners have been under a rock. I think that we probably should. So my favorite murder is only like maybe four years old. It's not very old. Yeah. Uh, And it's these two ladies who love true crime and have always loved true crime. And so they basically share crime stories, mostly murder. Um, Each one shares a story every week. And um, yeah, they have this huge following, like huge. They're called murderinos. They're called murderinos. And I guess by definition, Melody and I are are murderinos. Murderinos. (laughs) And you know where murderinos comes from, right? Tell me. It's from The Simpsons. It's a Ned Flanderism. Hey. <laughs> I don't know what episode it is, but he, he uses the term mur- like "hi diddly ho murderinos." <laughs> <laughs> so I suppose this here is our very own "hi diddly ho" to all the murderinos out there. <laughs> yeah, this is our own. This is our contribution to the world of murderinos is copying them <laughs> for one episode. But both of our stories they haven't covered, so. We're yeah, like so, trying to be ethical about this. Yeah. And also, we're not going to turn our podcast into a copy of theirs. We're not going to do true crime no. stories every week because that no. would be ridiculous. There are a lot of podcasts that do that. And no, no judgment, no shade. But we're not going to do that. <laughs> What's your favorite true crime podcast other than My Favorite Murder? Oh, God. Other than My Favorite Murder? Yeah. That's tricky. Okay. So I have three podcasts that I listen to no, four. I have four podcasts that I listen to all of the ones that come out. My Favorite Murder, Reply All, which is so good. It's not true crime. Where Should We Begin, which is like a therapy podcast. And then... Oh, that sounds good. Sword and Scale. I actually am pretty sure I listened to all of those ones. And that's another true crime one. That one's darker than My Favorite Murder. There's not as much humor. But well, it's definitely, good. It's very yeah, well-researched. Because definitely... Um, my Favorite Murder is a comedy podcast, like true crime comedy. Yes. Yeah. Like us, because we're hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, right? Um, I really like this lady. Oh, gosh, I can't remember what her name is. Esther something. She does a podcast called Once Upon a Crime. Oh, I've heard of that. I haven't listened. And it's insane because it's just her. She just kind of reads a script that she's written about the crime or the event. Yeah. And then it sounds kind of awful and boring, but it's not because she's so meticulous. Right. The amount of research she does is so crazy that it's actually kind of amazing. Hmm. 
And I've also been listening to another one a lot recently called Criminal by Phoebe Judge. Oh, I love Criminal too. I forgot about that one. Yeah, she's cool. Yeah, she's pretty great. Hi, this is Criminal. I'm Phoebe Judge. I didn't do a good impression, but that's what she does. It was pretty good. It was pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we haven't done this in a while, Liz. Yeah, I'm I'm back. In a while. Welcome back, first of all. Thanks. I missed you. I missed you too. Liz is busy. I have a full-time job. Yeah. A full-time uh, job and like a, a rip and ruin side gig. Oh, yeah. And the side things. And just like life. Oh, God. Life in late stage capitalism, mm. 21st century is, uh, is rough. And yeah. I'm speaking from a position of like immense privilege. <laughs> 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 so it's, if it's hard for me, I mean, think about everybody else. Yeah. Life is crazy. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. I just saw my neighbors who live like across the highway and I haven't seen them in months. Oh, really? Yeah. Justine and Ian. Justine's been on the podcast. And they came over to slaughter chickens. So I was going to ask you your week peak, but I think since I just brought that up, I'll launch into mine. Which yeah, is what's that, your week peak, Mel? Well, I killed a bunch of chickens today. <laughs> she a, sure did. She just said, she just texted me the uh, the pictures. Pretty gruesome. <laughs> I know, and it's so funny that we're recording this particular podcast on the day that I just killed my roosters. Right? But, um, yeah, I hadn't seen Justine and Ian for like months, and they're just across the highway. And it's because we have kids, and our lives are crazy. I mean, even if we didn't have kids, we're adulting, as they say. Yeah, and we just don't have time, man. It's hard. Yeah, it's hard, and you're like just exhausted, and you just rather would go to bed or then hang out. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Or like get stoned or drink beer. Yeah. I drank but a liter and a half of wine last night. I'm not going to lie. Good for you. Good for you. <laughs> so, yes, that was my week peak. Not because I love killing stuff. I oh, super right, don't. Melody. Right. <laughs> I super don't. But it was um, it was a personal triumph to be able to do the slaughter without Sarah Wright, who also sometimes comes on Woo-hoo. the podcast <laughs> because Sarah's usually like sort of the team leader at the slaughter. Sarah takes charge, <laughs> delegates to people. And we did it. We did it without Sarah. We did Sarah, it. That's great. Cause Sarah, Sarah's been raising chickens for a long time. Meat chickens. Yes. And I cut a chicken's head off all by myself. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. And so you, you caused that chicken no pain. I hope. I mean, it probably hurts a little when you uh, cut their neck, but anyway, we eat meat. I eat meat. A lot of our listeners eat meat. And this is where it comes from. I eat meat and I, and I try to eat only meat raised by people that I know and or trust to uh, reduce my, you know, bad animal things. I hate that stuff. Your bad animal juju. I don't like the factory farm experience that animals um, go through. No, it's terrible. It's terrible. Yeah. Yeah. These roosters had a pretty cushy life. Yeah. Right. They're, good and pudgy they had a good time in the greenhouse for a number of months they weren't outside all winter so bye-bye roosters Mm, delicious thank you you for your service (laughs) (laughs) do you have any week peaks liz let's see week peak. it could be like a winter peak a winter peak um (laughs) i would say i have a kind of i have oh god some things are going pretty well i would say you know generally one major like last few weeks since i've been on the podcast uh peak is that jm and i have made some pretty serious inroads into 
actually putting up art and setting up things like our dining room, despite the fact that we've been in our house for a year and a half. (laughs) (laughs) So we can actually have like people come over and sit at a table. Nice. And, oh, I know what, I have a literal week peak. Uh, I work at the Faculty of Health Sciences at Queens, which includes the School of Nursing. And I got wind of the fact that the School of Nursing was giving away one of their lounge couches. And it was in like perfect condition, like brand new. I just needed someone to help me go get it. Perfect, brand new, free new couch in the living room. Yeah, it's pretty great. Sweet. Full of bed bugs though, right? (laughs) Well, I thought about that. And then... The students don't go to the School of Nursing that much. Like, it's mostly faculty and staff. And so it looks brand new. It looks like it's never been used. Sweet. And I don't think the building has bed bugs because I don't know why I'm associating students with bed bugs. I shouldn't do that. Because <laughs> they're dirty. <laughs> dirty and poor and careless. <laughs> uh, we all know that we can get bed bugs from fancy hotels. Um, mm. I think it's fine. So yeah, brand new couch. It's already covered in dog hair, but who cares? Sweet. Well, yeah. awesome. That's a good week peak. It sounds like you're advancing adult-wise. Like you're yeah, yeah, we can have dining room. You've got a new couch. Yep. We can host people. And if you ever came out back over here, ever, I mean, who'd have <laughs> think you'd ever come here again? Never again. <laughs> um, but if Holly was ever here, she wouldn't maybe wouldn't think it was so boring as she did last time. <laughs> And we have we have multiple TVs now. We have more than one television. She could go Perfect. in a whole other room and, and we could just let her watch TV. Um, do you want to tell the story about her saying your house was boring? Oh, my God. So like three years ago, maybe. Yeah, probably three years ago. If we've been in this house for almost two years, our other house was really small and only had one floor. It was a little bungalow. And the house we currently live in has two floors. And it was just, you know, we had the whole family, like you and your whole family were over. Plus her dog was a puppy and really irritating. And um, it's just everyone crammed in one room. There's nothing you can really do. There's no fun things for children to do. And Holly looked at you and said, Mommy, why is it so boring here? (laughs) (laughs) And I thought it was hilarious and totally accurate. (laughs) Yeah, we're getting better, more set up. There's more spaces to sit and hang out. And like, you don't have to all be crammed in the same room. Nice. Yeah. Like the podcasting room, the room that we've previously used to podcast Mm -hmm. now has a couch in it. Whoa. Yeah. It's not a nice couch. It's like a garbagey couch, but who cares? Sweet. In the cat room. Yeah. In the cat room, which now has a TV. (laughs) Whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah. Yeah. Two TV rooms. Holy bananas. Yeah. So that's my week peak. We can watch television apart, JM and I. (laughs) (laughs) Couple schools. Yep. (laughs) Should we do a super quick icebreaker, just you and me? Yeah, sure. Sure. Let's go for it. We can't, since Melody's in Perth and I'm in Kingston, we're doing this on the internet through the miracle Mm. of the internet. I can't reach into Melody's box. I can reach into my own box. I have some experience with that. (laughs) (laughs) Roll up your sleeves, pull up your socks, reach on into Melody's box. Icebreakers. Okay. I'm reaching in really deep. (laughs) Elizabeth Cooper. Yes. If you were left on a deserted island with either your worst enemy or no one, which would you choose? First of all, I want you to name on air your worst enemy. (laughs) (laughs) 
And if you could provide their address and phone number, that would be great too. (laughs) Their social insurance number. Yes. Definitely alone. 100% alone. Yeah. Because if I have only my worst enemy to choose from, it's definitely alone. I would prefer to be with someone, but I don't hate that many people. And so the people that I really, really, really dislike or like anyone who I've encountered in my life that I've really disliked and I've just been like, oh my God, I would rather be alone than with them. (laughs) Fair. Yeah. Yeah, Like if you dislike them enough to dislike them. (laughs) Kind of. That says something. (laughs) Definitely. I would rather be alone with someone I truly, truly, truly dislike. What about you? I guess the time frame is pertinent to this question. Like, is this a forever thing or is it, I don't know. I think I would probably actually go with my enemy. Probably. Really? I think so. Yeah. Because although I really enjoy alone time, I think I would still have plenty of alone time. Would I? Mm, Actually, if there's only two of you, you might get pretty attached at the hip. If there's only two of you, you might end up like, I don't know, starting civilization again. If you can like produce offspring or something, it might be awful. We would end up boning. Yes. Yeah. But I feel like I can find it in myself to like pretty much anyone if I spend enough time with them. All right. Know them well enough. I mean, like I'd have issues with, say, Trump or Hitler. So always goes to Hitler. (laughs) But I think fundamentally, pretty much everyone, except maybe the Zodiac Killer and Charles Starkweather, fundamentally, they're good underneath it all. And I feel like we'd find common ground and protect each other. It would be pretty scary to be on an island all alone with like, would you have tools? Would you, I don't know, would I have a house and stuff? Like if I would have an an abode where I could do stuff and just have nice alone time, then maybe I'd go for alone. But if it's like I'm stranded on an island and I'm going to have to build shelters, I think I'd want a comrade. Even if it was your worst enemy. Yeah, because I don't really have enemies. Like I can't, I don't know if I could think of anyone that I really hate i mean i don't really have enemies either (laughs) liz has so many enemies (laughs) (laughs) right so many enemies well that's an interesting point you'd rather be with someone than alone i mean i'd probably go crazy alone let's face it but (sighs) i also love uh, my alone time though so like if if my worst enemy was super clingy that would be problematic but then maybe i'd just eat them or something so now you'd be like, want them around so you can have food. Exactly. <laughs> I might have to eat you. So you're better. <laughs> you're better. I'd rather have you around just in case I'm starving. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Well, I think we've learned something about Melody today. Cannibal. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we can. Nibble. <laughs> oh my God. You've got to be a political slogan writer. <laughs> Icebreakers. <laughs> I think we should move on to something more uplifting, Liz. Okay. <laughs> Do you want to talk about murder first or shall I? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm, I feel like yours, mine's really famous and a lot of people might already know about it. I don't know. Why don't I go first? Because yours sounds like a real showstopper. Okay. Okay, cool. <laughs> okay. I'm excited. I actually, I mean, I know a little bit about the Zodiac Killer just through... Uh, you know the the world and my favorite murder also (laughs) yeah but i don't i really don't know the whole story so i'm interested to learn have you seen the movie 
No. Okay. Well, I don't know if it's on Canadian Netflix anymore, but if you have a chance to see it, it's a um, David Fincher movie. I like David Fincher movies. His other movies are things like Fight Club and Panic Room and uh, the Third Aliens movies, which was maybe a mistake, whatever. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So he's a really experienced um, and interesting movie director. So it's a great movie. It's 2007. Jake Gyllenhaal, uh, Mark Ruffalo, Robert Downey Jr., who's not everyone's cup of tea, but I like him. Uh, so it's a it's a really, really entertaining, amazing movie that, as I found through my research, is actually pretty accurate in terms of the storyline of the crimes. Mm-hmm. So you know how sometimes you'll be like, oh, I saw the movie about that. And then you learn about the real stuff and you think, oh, they really took a lot of liberties when they made the movie to make it more interesting or to make it more streamlined or to make it more cinematic or whatever right, but from right, right. what i but from what i can tell the movie is actually a pretty good representation of like what happened in real life and the movie is how i ever came to know who the zodiac killer was because i'm such a huge david fincher fan and i've watched it a million times and yeah that's what we're going to talk about right now cool cool okay so i got a lot of this information from a, a San Francisco Chronicle, which is a newspaper in San Francisco timeline, because as you'll find out later, the Zodiac Killer became famous basically because he wrote letters to the newspaper. Uh, so I got lots of information from the Cron. The Cron. <laughs> um, I also watched a Cold Case Files episode, which makes me exactly like Karen and... How Karen of you. Yeah, Karen and Georgia. And there's a podcast on the Stuff You Should Know Network, Mm. and it's called Monster. And the guy who runs it, he does like one serial killer for a whole season. So his first season was all about the Atlanta child killer, which I did not listen to yet, but I think I might. And then the second season is all about the Zodiac killer. In the last two days, I've listened to nine episodes of it. (laughs) (laughs) So with that being said, here I go. Okay. Okay. Ready. I'm setting the scene. The Bay Area, San Francisco E, uh, 1968. Two teenagers, Betty Lou Jensen and David Faraday, were near Vallejo, California, which is in the Bay Area, but it's just like outside of San Francisco. They were just out like parking, you know, making out in a car. They were necking. Uh, They were necking in a car. And I think it might have even been their first date, if I'm not wrong. What a bunch of sluts. Yeah. But you're going to regret saying that in a second. Oh, God. Because <laughs> they both got shot. So oh. basically what happened was that they were on this lover's lane, kind of an area known for being a lover's lane called Lake Herman Road. And they were both shot with a 22 caliber rifle, I think. That's what a, a 22 is a rifle. And the police were, first of all, it's 1968. The regions around San Francisco in the 60s are like farmland, like really quiet extremely rural another karen from my favorite murder connection this is not far from like where she's from petaluma super rural not built up especially 50 years ago and so the police were just like what what the fuck like two teenagers just got shot in their car like that never happens so there's no evidence at all there's nothing people are freaked out by it there is some investigation but the case essentially goes cold or starts to go cold because they just have no leads. There's no motive. There's no nothing. And then about eight months later, July 4th, 1969, Michael Majot 
and Darlene Farron. They weren't a couple. Darlene was actually married, but she had lots of boyfriends and male friends. She was a really popular waitress at a local diner. Um, And they were out at like a lover's lane type area. And in one of the podcasts, actually, her husband was interviewed. And he said, I mean, maybe she had more of a relationship with Michael than I know of, but I just... I don't know. So not only does this man have to deal with the fact that his wife was oh, murdered, yeah. um, she was also like with another man and he doesn't know, you know, what their relationship was. So I forgot to say where this was. This was in Vallejo as well. So they're in this like lover's lane area called Blue Rock Springs Park and they're chatting. And the reason why we know a bit more is because the man, Michael Majot, survives, but Darlene Farron dies. So they were sitting there in their car talking. It was dark. It was nighttime. And a car pulled up behind them. They were blinded by the headlights. The headlights remained on them. A person got out of the car, walked to the passenger side of the door of the car where Michael Majot was sitting because it was Darlene's car. She was driving. Shone a flashlight in their face and shot them both several times. And it's just like a miracle that he survived because he was shot like four or five times. I think I can't remember. Oh my God. Um, So she was DOA. She died on route to the hospital. But just a few minutes after that, the Vallejo police got a phone call that said, I want to report a murder. I did it. There was a brown car at Blue Rock Springs Park and I shot those people. And I also killed those two kids last winter. So basically the phone call claimed responsibility for the most recent murder, like of that evening and the one from last, uh, last Christmas. So very creepy. And were they able in 1968, could they like trace calls? Oh, this is the creepy part. They could trace calls to destinations, but you had to be on the phone for like 15 or 20 minutes. Oh. Plus in this case, the cops didn't even know a murder happened. So they just got a phone call. Right. From a person saying, I've just committed a murder. Plus I was the one who killed those kids last winter. And when the people were searching this town, the cops were searching Vallejo they found a payphone with the receiver just dangling and they traced it and they figured out that it came from that phone booth. So he was only like a few blocks away from the cop shop when he made the call. Yikes. It's super creepy. So basically up until this point, you know, people feel like, wow, this community has been rocked by these two incidents. Doesn't usually happen. But they weren't thinking serial killer. The word serial killer didn't even exist in 1969. But then the San Francisco Chronicle got its first letter from the Zodiac. And I'll send you this so you can put it on Instagram or whatever. But the Zodiac sent a cipher, like a code to the newspaper, to the San Francisco Chronicle saying, you have to decode this. And if you do decode it, you'll find out who I am. So So he sent, like the letter was in code. He wrote a note, but he also had a code. Okay. And so he eventually, this is why the Zodiac becomes so famous because he has so much communication with newspapers. So he he sends this cipher, this code to the San Francisco Chronicle, the San Francisco Examiner and the Vallejo Times Herald. So they all three newspapers got a code and so they had to work together. So they were using like the FBI, these like Navy code breakers. Nobody could figure out what the code said except a husband and wife team decoded it. Whoa. Which is hilarious. So he's, I mean, really what he's doing here is he's bringing community together. <laughs> yes. He's, yes. He's, he's making the people work together. He's building connections. That's yeah. what he was doing. Yeah. 
So um, a husband and wife team, the husband was a high school teacher. They decoded the cipher by figuring out what's the most common letter in the English language, E. So they looked at what character was in the code more than any other character. And then they also, they were like, okay, what, what's a really common double consonant? Double L. What word is most likely in this cipher? Kill. So that's how they broke the code. And then they're able to decipher the message, which did not give away his identity. It basically just said, Ah, um, suckers. (laughs) (laughs) It basically said like, I'm just going to start killing people. I'll go into more what the, um, the, the letter said shortly. I'm just going to go through the timeline of his okay. murders. So yeah, one Lover's Lane murder, another Lover's Lane murder, first code to those three newspapers in the San Francisco area. And then only a few months later, so the second murders were July 4th, 1969, September 27th, 1969. Two people, a couple, a young couple, were picnicking at a place called Lake Berryessa in Napa. So still Bay Area, just to the north. And it was bright, sunny day, like right in the middle of the day, not nighttime like the other two incidents. And they were having a picnic. And the woman, Cecilia, said that she thought she saw someone behind a tree. And then her boyfriend, Brian, was like, what? No, no big deal. And then she said, no, there's a man coming this way with a mask. What? What is going on? And if you've ever seen pictures of the Zodiac Killer, this is where the like garb comes from, this incident. He was wearing an executioner style mask, like medieval style. So like basically a black bag over his head with eye holes cut out. Ooh. He was wearing all black and he had on the front of his shirt, what has become known as the Zodiac symbol, which is a circle with a cross through it. He had that on the front of his shirt. He tied them both up and repeatedly stabbed both of them. The woman died. The man survived. So that's why we know what he looked like, or at least what outfit he was wearing. And so they had been screaming when they were terribly murdered. And a fisherman on the lake heard them and came to investigate. By that time, the Zodiac was already gone. But the fisherman was able to call the police and stuff. On the side of Brian's car, the Zodiac had written the date of the first murder, the date of the second murder, and then that day's date, and then the words by knife. So that was real creepy. He also made a phone call to the police station in that area from fairly close to the police station from a payphone saying, I want to report a murder, a double murder. And I did it. And he just talked to the, the police operator and then dropped the phone. And so it was another hanging receiver and walked away. So up to now, people are like losing their minds. Yeah, random, no random violence. Nobody's safe. These are like all young, nice white people, which, you know, it is the 60s. The news really ate that up because like they're not... Like, people really cared about this violence because it was white people. Culturally, the Summer of Love had just happened in 1967 in San Francisco when over 100,000, like, hippies basically came to San Francisco just to, like, hang out and be part of the culture. And so there's all sorts of, like, cultural changes happening. And this really shook people up. This kind of, like, marked the end of the hippie era in the Bay Area because... It just became really unsafe. He kind of held the city hostage. 
Yeah. So up until this point, even though he had communicated once with the San Francisco Chronicle, he hadn't actually done anything in San Francisco. These were all smaller towns outside of San Francisco. But then less than a month later, he shot a cab driver in San Francisco named Paul Stein. And so he got into a cab. He asked the cab driver to stop at a very specific corner. And then a few minutes later decided, no, I don't want this. And he asked the cab driver to pull up another block. And then there he shot the cab driver, got out of the car, went into the front seat of the cab, cleaned up all of his prints, and then walked into a nearby park. And the reason they know that is because there were kids in a house across the street who saw the cab driver get shot. And they called the police and reported it. Now, the thing, what happened was that was kind of scandalous was that something went wrong from when the kids called the cops to when the description of the man who shot the cab driver was reported. They reported him as a black man, but the Zodiac killer is white. And so the first like few minutes that the police were in the area searching the area, two um, patrolmen stopped a white man and said, have you seen anyone suspicious around? He said, I saw a man with a gun in the park. And so they went off looking for this man um, in the park. But what they later presume is that the person that they spoke to was the Zodiac killer. But because the suspect had been incorrectly reported as being black, the patrolman who interviewed him didn't think that he was the suspect. So they probably talked to him. I know. So they know that the Paul Stein, Paul Stein's the cab driver, they know that he is a Zodiac victim because he wrote a letter to the San Francisco Chronicle with a piece of Paul Stein's blood-covered shirt. Like in, he mailed a piece of the shirt? To the, to the newspaper, yep. Did he That's just prob- cut a little piece off or did he take the whole shirt as like a trophy or something? He cut a little piece off. That's what he was doing when he got into the front seat of the car. Oh. Yep. So the, so those are those are five confirmed deaths, seven victims. Those are the only confirmed zodiac victims. But all through the next several years, he continues to hold uh San Francisco and the Bay Area hostage by continually sending new letters, continually sending new ciphers. And in the letters he'll say, "Oh, I've killed 14 people now," or "I've killed 25 people now." Or I've killed this many people now. You've you're losing this game. I'm winning, and so we nobody knows how many people the Zodiac killed because in one of his letters he also claims, you know, I'm not going to tell you anymore when I killed someone like he did with the first three incidents. It's going to like an accident, so you'll never know. So, the, but there must have been murders going on or deaths going on where they thought they were his, but the but they only confirmed for sure those first seven. Yeah. They only confirmed the first seven victims because the Zodiac straight up said I did them. And he's, and he referred to them in his letters or he called. Right. Right. But he claimed other victims, but he didn't specify. He didn't say like, he didn't name them. He didn't name them. He didn't say that lady who you found on the beach dead on this day. I did that. He didn't say that. He just said, Oh, now I have 37 victims. So he could have been lying. He might not. He could have been exaggerating or he could have been telling the truth. Who knows? Right. Now, what did happen later on, the following year, there was some suspicion 
that a woman who was killed in Riverside, California, which is in Southern California, it's closer to Los Angeles, she had been murdered in 1966, which is before any of the murders up north took place. And there is some suspicion that that was the Zodiac's first murder, but there's never been any conclusive um, evidence to say that he actually did that. But this really creepy thing happened um, in 1970. So let's see, Paul Stein, the cab driver, who was the last confirmed victim, was killed October 11th, 1969. March 22nd, 1970, there was a woman. Her name was, scroll, 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 (laughs) (laughs) Kathleen Johns. She was 22. She was pregnant and she had a baby. So she, you know, kind of vulnerable. She was driving and a man came like kind of past her in his car and flashed his headlights and he kind of motioned to her to get her to pull over. And then he tapped on the window when she did pull over. Hello, it's 1970. People would fucking pull over for that sort of thing. Nobody would pull over now. Can you imagine? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. (laughs) Nobody would. So she pulled over and he came to her window and he said, Hey, your um your car wheels are loose. Let me tighten them up for you. And she said, Okay, thanks. And he got out a tire iron and he loosened them. And so he said, okay, you're all good to go. And so she started driving and her tire fell off. So he stopped again and he said, okay, why don't you come in with me? I'll I'll take you to the nearest um, gas station. And she said, okay, thanks a lot. So she, she got out of the car and he could see that she was pregnant and she got out a baby. Like a, I don't think they did... I don't think they did car seats in the 70s. She probably just picked her baby up. (laughs) Yeah, she just had a baby under her arm. (laughs) Yeah, probably. And so the person who picked her up said, oh, you've got a baby. And she said, yes. So when she got into the car, he drove her around for hours. And the whole time he kept saying to her, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to throw your baby out the window. I'm going to kill you. And so the only reason she got away is because he slowed down to get on a freeway. And she just took the chance and opened her door and had her baby in her arms. And she just threw herself out the car, out of the car. And she survived. Okay. And was he masked or anything? No, she saw his face. So because two of the male victims in the previous murders survived, they did have a police sketch of the Zodiac. There's nothing that he didn't say to her in the car, I'm the Zodiac. <laughs> he just said, I'm going to kill you and throw your baby out of the car window. So when she, she got picked up by someone, they took her to the cops, you know, they took her statement. And as soon as she walked into the police station, she saw the sketch of the Zodiac killer, like the police sketch, because it was up on the board of like people that are wanted. And she pointed at it and she said, hey, that's the guy who just drove me around for two hours saying he was going to murder me. Oh, so the police aren't totally sure that this was an encounter with the Zodiac, but she, to this day, well, to the time of her death, is is convinced that it was a Zodiac. Can you imagine? No, no. So yeah, the part of the story that I'm going to tell you now is that he just kept on writing letters to the San Francisco newspaper and kept on goading the police and threatening to do things like shoot out the car tires of a school bus and kill all the kids as they got off or plant bombs on school buses. And he would like send schematics of bombs to the Chronicle. And then the cops would have a bomb expert look at the schematic and the cops would be like, and the bomb expert would say, uh, yeah, that, that is a working bomb that would work. (laughs) So he just, 
was like on this rampage of wanting attention, but terrifying the entire Bay Area. He even um, sent a piece of Paul Stein's bloody shirt to a really prominent San Francisco lawyer named Melvin Belli, who's like a celebrity lawyer. And he said, I'm drowning. I need your help. Like I want help. And so Melvin Belli said, okay, let's talk on the phone. So they even set up like an on-air, like on-television phone conversation with the Zodiac. Melvin Belli said, you call in and we'll talk on the air. And there was a whole conversation. (laughs) And then later, it was confirmed that the person who called in and pretended to be the Zodiac was the person who was from a local mental institution. (laughs) Yeah, so the Zodiac, even though the Zodiac did contact Melvin Belli and agreed to be on this on-air phone conversation, it wasn't actually him who called in. Have you heard any clips of the conversation? Are those... Yeah, it was... um, it was um, on the Monster podcast that I talked about. Mm. And can I just say that in the film, the David Fincher film, the scene where the actor playing Melvin Belli is speaking to this like disembodied voice because it's re- called in is such a great scene. It's so creepy. Oh, the whole movie is just chef's kiss. Amazing. Like, <laughs> it's really creepy. So, so yeah, like... It's just all letters from then on. And then eventually things stop happening, right? Like um, the police have other work to do. There's no more confirmed bodies. They get a few letters, but then there's a three-year break where they get no letters. And then in 1974, they get their first letter again. And it's more like, hey, how come no one's wearing my Zodiac buttons? I want everyone to like know who I am. Like he's disappointed that he's not as popular anymore, I think. And in the podcast Monster, they theorized that the arrest and capture and description of Charles Manson and the Manson family overshadows the Zodiac stuff, especially since there's no new cases. Right. And so they think that maybe he was upset by that because he was being overshadowed by this larger, more like high profile case. Um, but I'm going to talk about the prime suspect. Okay. Um, and in the, the Hollywood movie, they really, really bang on about this man. His name is Arthur Lee Allen. I'm going to do a spoiler. Arthur Lee Allen has been exonerated with DNA, which is insane when you're going to hear all of the things that, <laughs> like, he's like a perfect suspect. So I'll work backwards here. After the Golden State Killer was captured two years ago through DNA, the Zodiac people were like, hey, we got letters from him. There was no DNA in the 60s and 70s, like DNA testing. He probably wasn't worried about that, so he would have had to lick the envelopes. So they have done DNA testing on the envelopes from from his letters, and they haven't been able to build a full profile, but they have been able to eliminate suspects, and Arthur Lee Allen was eliminated using this process. So that's too bad because he was like the best, the best suspect. Basically, he, now I'm going to click on another page. (laughs) Oh, I also got information from this website called ZodiacKiller.com. Ooh, sounds legit. (laughs) It's pretty legit. Is it created by the Zodiac Killer himself? (laughs) No. (laughs) How do you um, know? (laughs) Well, on the Cold Case Files episode I watched, the man who made this website was on that episode. And has he been exonerated by DNA? (laughs) (laughs) No, they haven't looked into him yet. 
Well, I can't remember, saying. I can't remember his name. <laughs> um, but he, so Arthur Lee Allen's dead. He died of a heart attack. And before, when they, when he died, they kept some of his tissues. That's how they were able to exonerate him, basically. But he was just like super suspicious. So first of all, his brother and sister-in-law went to the police and said, we think there's a good possibility that Arthur Lee Allen is the Zodiac. So this is like his family thought he did it. He also told one of his really good friends and that friend went to the police with this story that basically Arthur was like, I really just want to start killing people and I think I'll call myself the Zodiac. And he said this before the first murder in 1968. And his friend was like, okay, thanks. That's really weird. So he was just like the most obvious suspect. And he had been at Lake Berryessa the day that those two people were murdered. He was skin diving or what they call skin diving. He was scuba diving. And when he got back to his house, he had a knife in the front seat of his car and it was covered in blood. And when the cops... Right? Is it possible someone else licked the envelopes? <laughs> <laughs> I know. That's I'm it, it's so crazy. When he was asked by the cops like, "Hey, why do you have blood uh, like a blood-covered knife in the front seat of your car and you were in the same spot where two people were murdered today?" He said, "Oh, I met some people on the beach and uh, we carved up chicken and um ate them for lunch." That was his excuse. That they just slaughtered chicken? Yep, at like the beach. Like they slaughtered live chickens at the beach. Yep. Seriously, though. Mm-hmm. <sighs> yep. Okay. The other thing is that <laughs> <Go> Arthur. <laughs> so there's a ton of circumstantial evidence yeah. that points directly to him. Yes. He was wearing a watch when the police interviewed him that had the circle with a cross through it as the emblem, which was the thing that Zodiac used to sign all of his letters. And there was a three-year period where the San Francisco Chronicle didn't receive any more letters, and then they started up again after this mysterious break. Arthur Lee Allen was in prison for child molestation in those three years. So, so like, it's so, it's just, like, giant arrows pointing in the direction of this, like, very obvious person. And did he, like, did they arrest him? They questioned him a million times, but they couldn't because it was all circumstantial. <sighs> they, could ne- they never had enough evidence to arrest him. There are um, so many people who have been put to jail, <laughs> like, or put in prison yeah. for life with yeah. way less evidence than that. Yeah. I will talk about one later. Go yeah. on. <laughs> I mean, the, the fact that, I mean, oh, oh, and when they searched his trailer where he lived, it was filled with dead and live animals. And many of the animals had been dissected and there were parts of the animals in his freezer. Ay, ay, ay. So it was just like a wooga wooga wooga. The Zodiac although, killer is <laughs> Arthur Lee Allen. Although that gives credence to his story about slaughtering a live chicken at the beach. It's like, well, I mean, if anyone's going to do it, it's going to be Arthur Lee Allen. <laughs> yes, I mean, you're right, <laughs> totally right. So, so basically, I mean, this is like a truncated version, but that's kind of it. The Zodiac killer terrorized a city slash region for a few years, sent some letters for a while afterwards. And that's it. No more confirmed cases after those first seven victims slash five murders. And the letters eventually stopped. And the case has gone cold. Arthur Lee Allen died of a heart attack. It was such a huge deal in San Francisco and the world that in 1971, a movie came out, a movie you might know, called Dirty Harry. 
Mm. Dirty Harry is based loosely on the Zodiac, Zodiac Killer because in that movie, Harry is a San Francisco cop and he's getting weird, creepy letters from a mysterious man who's threatening the whole city. And actually in the Hollywood movie called Zodiac, there's a scene <laughs> where one of the cops who's on the case goes to see Dirty Harry in the movie theater <laughs> <laughs> because Dirty Harry was like loosely based on him. And that cop is, um, the real cop's name is David Toskey. And he's played in the movie by Mark Ruffalo. And so David Toskey is, was the basis of Tur Dirty Harry. It's so wild that that suspect, that he's been exonerated even, I mean, okay, like I believe in DNA, but I don't know. I mean, the Golden State Killer, it took him, it took so long for him to get caught because he was a cop and like knew, right? Wasn't he a cop? Yeah, he was a cop. So he knew how not to get caught. Like, and I've heard that a lot of murderers like study up on cop stuff. I'm trying to think who, was it on My Favorite Murder? They were talking about someone recently who had read like police course manuals and stuff. Is this ringing a bell for you? Oh, well, there was a woman in BC who was going to work, um, or sorry, going to school for forensics. Mm -hmm. And she told her roommate that she was learning about forensics and like criminal things, um, like how to solve crimes because she wanted to murder people and get away with it. And then they determined that she killed her family dog, at least one of them. And she, it was big news a few years ago in BC because she was basically, they're going to put her under um, probation, even though she hasn't committed a crime yet, because she scared her family and this roommate so badly. And she basically said like, yeah, I want to murder people. So she hasn't actually committed a crime other than the dog, but they figured she really would. (laughs) So get this. I'm looking at a list right now. Remember how I said that Arthur Lee Allen told an old friend before the first murder about all these things he wanted to do. And then that friend went to the police and said, basically Arthur Lee Allen told me all these plans like years ago. And now it's like exactly matches up with the Zodiac crimes. Yeah. So one of the letters that he wrote to the newspapers talked about the most dangerous game. And it's a book about this man who lures couples to his private Island and then hunts them down like animals. And so Arthur Lee Allen's favorite book was The Most Dangerous Game. And one of the letters from the Zodiac references it. I am not convinced that it wasn't him. Neither am I. So here's what he told his friend before the first. um, This is a more complete list than I gave before. This is what he told his friend before the first murder. He wanted to kill couples at random. He would taunt the police with letters detailing his crime. He would sign the letters with a cross circle symbol from his watch He would call himself the Zodiac. He would wear makeup to change his appearance. There's no evidence he did that later. He would attach a flashlight to the barrel of his gun in order to shoot people at night, which he did in the first two and then the fourth murder. And he would fool women into stopping their cars, claiming they had problems with their tires, and then loosen their lug nuts. He actually said that. Could he not have procured, like, envelopes and paper from some public place? Like, did they find that there was a DNA profile that commonly ran through the pieces of evidence they had. Oh, that's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. Huh? Cause yeah. I mean, if he's that clever and is there any information about this guy's IQ? Like, was he, a, he was, was he very a- smart. Yeah. 
Um, oh, here's the last piece, the last piece of damning evidence against Arthur Lee Allen. So the second Lover's Lane murder, he shot a woman and her boyfriend or her friend. The man survived, Michael Majot. Michael Majot had a really rough life after that. He had lots of trouble with drugs and he just never really recovered. It was a super traumatic thing. Um, oh, but shit. like, and he And he disappeared. The police couldn't find him for further questioning, right? And he's only one of... He's one of two people who've seen the Zodiac with no mask on. So 15 years later, after the crime, one of the cops from Vallejo gets in touch with Michael Mageau. He finds him and he shows him because by that point, Arthur Lee Allen has become this suspect that the police are like drooling over, but they can't prove it. He shows Michael Mageau a six pack. So like six photographs of men who all look kind of the same. And one of them is Arthur Lee Allen. And Michael Majot picked Arthur Lee Allen out of that six pack. So it's it's like people just are dying to know um, who did it. And everyone thinks it's Arthur Lee Allen. But at this point, still 2020, it's still a cold case. Nobody knows what happened. Oh, man. You know what? When you were first talking to me about this, I was thinking it was the Golden State Killer. And so I was like great we're gonna wrap it up with a bow like <laughs> we're gonna end up with the the case being solved right and this triumphant story of this man being captured after all this time because of like dna evidence and blah 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 but no liz nope, nope. this sucks yeah. <laughs> i know i'm sorry like this mon- the, the monster podcast that i got a lot of information from mm-hmm. was only made uh a year ago someone made a whole podcast about the zodiac a year ago because it's so tantalizing. And what the cops have said, the cops and other people who've, who've um, been obsessed with this case for years, the thing that's so unusual about this case, well, there's many things. Well, number one, he, every single murderer was different. He shot the first two kids at Lover's Lane with a twenty-two. He shot the second two kids on a Lover's Lane with an, a 9 millimeter. He went, he shot two more people, a couple, so you're eating couple, 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 but the third couple, he stabbed them. He didn't shoot them. Then he shoots an individual man in a cab in San Francisco. Like, he's just so random. But then he gives, like, all of this information to the cops via these letters. Like, it's unusual to have this much evidence in a case. And they still haven't been able to. That's wild. Yeah. As of now, there's nothing. Like, no one knows who did it. That's crazy. So that is the story of the Zodiac Killer. Yikes. Well, that's fucking crazy. Okay, let's talk about your murder. First, we're going to take a quick break. Go for it. And we'll be right back. Okay, bye. This episode is brought to you by Just the Tip Hand Poke Tattoos. And if you've been listening for a while, you'll know that JTT Tattoos is one of our super besties and one of the show's co-creators, Sarah Wright. Sarah does detailed and whimsical custom hand poke tattoos, specializing in botanicals and super weird shit, which we know you love. And it's done in the comfort of a cozy wood fire warmed private studio in beautiful Perth, Ontario, Canada. Just the tip welcomes all bodies, meaning everybody is welcome. Unless you're a dick, in which case you're not welcome. <laughs> Check out their work at Just the Tip Hand Poke Tattoos on Instagram or at Just the Tip Hand Poke Tattoos.com. That's J U S T T A G T. Nope, I'm not going to spell that. And you can book online. 
just, just the, the tip, tip tattoos.com. And now for our sponsored segment with Sarah Wright, it's Just the Tips. I want to tidy up my pubes, but every time I do, it makes me so itchy. I'm not talking shaving them off, but trimming them and cutting the hairs seems to turn them into tiny daggers. What are your pubic hair grooming JTTs? So use an electric shaver. Before you shave, exfoliate, okay? Then shave it with the electric shaver, like the beard trimmer, at whatever length you want. Then when you're done, make sure you keep shit moisturized. I like to use hydrocolonic acid, which I also use on my face. It's like the best thing for your skin ever. And then I actually use one of my serums, like one of my face oils. And I put that shit on my pussy like twice a day in the morning and in the evening. And it keeps everything soft. I haven't had any ingrown hair problems. It's just the bomb. So just like take care of your pussy the same way you take care of your face. Because that girl needs love too, you know? She's fucking a hard-working woman. So that's my advice. If you have any questions for Sarah, send them in to teachmetigerpodcast at gmail.com and listen for them on an upcoming show. Thanks, Sarah. Just, just, just the, the tip, tip, tip and tattoos dot com. What a great break. What a great break. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I'm going to talk about Charles Starkweather because I myself am a Starkweather. So you're a murderer. I, yes. No, but there are, are not very many Starkweathers. Now, apparently, um, Charles Starkweather lived in Nebraska, and apparently, in sort of that part of America, there are a lot of Starkweathers, comparatively, oh. anyway. And, I've never heard of another Starkweather other than you. Well, in the ser- the rampage I, killer, I don't know if he counts as a serial killer because it was I just, a short period. I just Googled him, and it does say rampage killer. Spree murderer. Oh, my God. Oh, my. Yes, Charles Starkweather. So, But apparently, there's a town called Starkweather, my uncle said. He thinks in one of the Dakotas. Like, it's pretty prominent, a pretty prominent name out in that area. Oh. Mm-hmm. I can't so, wait to hear. Wait a second. I think this is also based on a movie that I love. A movie that you love is based loosely on this, I'm sure. Yes. Yeah. Called... Um, Badlands. Yes. Yes. So this story has a big place in popular culture. There are a lot of depictions in media, like there are a lot of books, um, fictionalized accounts of the story, uh, some that are more documentary in style, but there are a number of films. So there's Badlands, The Sadist, which was in the 60s, California with the (gasps) California, that's a great movie. And Natural Born Killers. Oh, no way. Do you like that movie? I have never seen it. Okay, because Chris and I rented it on, first of all, I should have said this is my week peak. Chris got a projector screen and a projector and our basement is now like a crazy home theater. The setup is pretty great, but we rented Natural Born Killers and it was written by Quentin Tarantino. It was before like Pulp Fiction and before he really came into his own as a director and all of this stuff. In fact, he was probably directing Pulp Fiction around the time that this was made, but this was directed by Oliver Stone. I remember like it's um, Juliette Lewis and um, Woody Harrelson are like crazy murderers, right? Like yes. who are on a spree across America. Yes. And it's very stylized and there's this sort of uh, 
I mean, it's pretty campy. It, there's like a lot of sort of comic book references, I think, in there. And it's just wacky. It's like a wacky, I guess it's like an art film, but I honestly hated it. <laughs> oh, why'd like, you hate it? Well, I think maybe maybe it's a little dated. Maybe that had something to do with it because it was this avant-garde style of filmmaking at the time. And I was just like, ugh, just tell me the story. Like, God, enough with all of this. <laughs> anyway, I hated it. And I saw it oh. when I was a teenager and I don't remember hating it, but looking, watching it now, I didn't even finish it. Wow. I know. Oh my gosh. I'm fascinated. Yes. Natural I had, killers. Well, it's funny that Juliet, Juliet uh, Lewis is in that and she's in the movie California. Oh, really? Yeah. She plays one of the murderers in that too. Interesting. Yeah. She's, she's a wild one. Uh, Bruce Springsteen wrote a song called Nebraska. That's like a first person account of the story of these murders, which I'll play a little clip here. There's also a hardcore metal band called Starkweather. And I probably wow. won't, I won't play a clip of them. I was trying to figure out what is the best Starkweather song. And perhaps I could ask uh, Steve Needham, who was on our metal episode, which one I should play. But I'm busy. I got shit to do. Steve Needham, if you're listening, what's the best Starkweather song? Okay. <laughs> okay. So Charles Starkweather, he killed 11 people and two family dogs between December 1957 and January 1958. 10 of the 11 were between January 21st and 29th. So the first one was just like for funsies, trying it out, you know? Wow. And then he really went to town on January 21st. He was 19 at the time, and he was with his 14-year-old girlfriend, Carol Ann Fugate, for the bulk of this. So for that spree, as they say. He was born in 1938 in Lincoln, Nebraska, the third of seven kids. And grew up in a working class family. By all accounts, his family life was pretty good. Uh, they didn't have like a lot. He of wasn't abused or anything. No, no, and they didn't have a lot of money. But it doesn't seem like he suffered really. However, he was born with a pretty mild birth defect called genu verum, which caused him to be bow legged. He also had a speech impediment, and he was sort of thought throughout his life to be very stupid. Now it came out that when he was a teenager, he actually had very severe myopia. And so he finally got glasses, but he just couldn't see for most of his life. Oh my God. And everyone thought he was stupid. So that sucks. Uh, Isn't it crazy? This is like something as like basic as glasses. Like maybe his life would have been better. Totally. And in high school, obviously he was bullied. So that's when all the trouble really started for him was in school. And in school, the one subject he excelled in was gym 
So people in a lot of the stuff that I've read, they talked about how this was like his physical outlet for his rage against bullies. And what happened is he got super strong and then he became a fucking like malicious bully. Oh, so he kind of flipped the script. Right. And so initially he was like bullying the people who bullied him. And then it turned into, he just bullied whoever he didn't like, like the look of, you know? Wow. So in 1956, Charles Starkweather was introduced to Carol Ann Fugate by her older sister, Barbara, who is dating his friend. Shoot. I thought I put the name of the friend. I don't know that it matters, but she was dating his friend. And they began dating. So Carol Ann was 13 and he was 18 at the time. It was the that's, 50s. It was a different time. But a 13. 13 year old still a child. Yep. That's a child. Yep. In his senior year of high school, he dropped out and started working for a Western Union newspaper warehouse, which happened to be very close to the Whittier Junior High School in Lincoln, Nebraska, where Carol happened to attend. So he would go and visit her like every day after school. And people at the warehouse said he was a super shitty (laughs) worker uh, (laughs) and had to be asked two to three times to do anything. (laughs) and one of his coworkers was quoted as saying of all the employees in the warehouse he was the dumbest we ever had oh oh my god (laughs) so obviously he was troubled and the couple got into trouble together early on so he decided he would teach carol how to drive so they took out his dad's car and she immediately crashed it into another vehicle his father had to pay all the damages to the other driver and his car of course was totaled And his father was a carpenter who was often out of work because he had like rheumatoid arthritis or something. So like money was a big thing for them. Right. And uh, Charles Starkweather was kicked out of his house as a result. At that point, he became a garbage collector. And it's been suggested that on his garbage collection routes, he started to plot bank robberies and such. I don't know if Charles Starkweather said that or where that information came from. It was mentioned in a few different places. So he also was super into James Dean and specifically his character in a rebel without a cause. And so he adopted that same look and that same like nihilistic attitude, man, people shouldn't like base their personalities off of movies. No. And, and in one of the podcasts I was listening to, they're saying that this is very common in serial killers, that they take on this persona that they see like in a film or whatever. I don't know. If is that's it because true. they, cause they but, have no personalities of their own? Maybe. Like, is that a thing a psychopath does take on another persona? Kind of. Maybe. Like they don't really have their own. They're kind of empty. Well, I think he probably was pretty empty. I guess so. Okay, so the first murder victim was 21-year-old service station attendant Robert Colvert. So he was 21. I believe he had been in the Navy. He had a young pregnant wife at home. Sad, sad, sad. Uh, Robert Colvert refused to sell him a stuffed animal on credit. And Charles Starkweather didn't have the money to buy the stuffed animal. This was for his girlfriend, Carol, because she was a child. So he was getting her a stuffy. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and this really pissed him off. So he then returned that same day several times to buy small items like cigarettes. I think he came back and bought some gum. But he was really casing the joint out and trying to figure out like how he was going to enact his revenge. And what he did is he came back three times. On the third visit, he robbed the till of $100, so cleaned out the till. They couldn't get into the safe, but he took the 100 bucks, And then he took Robert Colvert 
by gunpoint into his car and they drove to a remote area. They struggled over the gun and it fired hitting Colbert's leg, which then rendered him unable to fight back. And so then he got shot in the head. So it sounds like the first murder was kind of like opportunistic a little bit. Yes. Like he didn't go in there. He's like, I'm going to murder this guy. I don't know if he murdered him because he wanted the money out of the safe. And then he was like doubly pissed off at this guy because they couldn't get into the safe. And then he was like, I'm going to murder him. Or if he was planning to murder him the whole time, I actually lean more towards that. I feel like the robbery was an excuse to shoot this man. (laughs) Oh, okay. I was going to say maybe he just, he robbed him and then he was like, I like killing. And then he did it more. I don't know. I don't know. Hmm, Interesting theory. I mean, he was sent to the electric chair and it happened pretty quickly. And I don't think people wanted to give him a platform really. And so I don't like, he didn't talk a lot. As far as I know, I didn't read or hear anything about what he had to say about his motives. Right. Right. So I don't know. Cause he just like kind of got convicted and then was electrocuted. Pretty much. Yeah. It was 17 months after. Right. And look at people now they're on death row for like 20 years. Yeah, because I think a lot of places are like, maybe we shouldn't kill so many people. Like in Texas, they're just like, it was like a fucking conveyor belt. (laughs) Oh, boy. Okay. (laughs) So the murder spree started on January 21st, 1958. Charles Starkweather went to his girlfriend Carol's home to pick her up. She... The child. uh, Yes, his child lady friend. A fight then ensued with her mom and stepdad, Velda and Marion Bartlett. So uh, they were at this point disapproving of the relationship and they didn't want their daughter with him. And so there was some sort of altercation there and he shot both of them. Holy and, shit. Uh-huh. And then strangled, beat, and stabbed to death Carol Ann's two-year-old sister, Betty Ann. <gasps> oh my God. He then took the bodies out behind the house. He stuffed Velda, the mom, down the outhouse hole. He like wrapped, I believe he wrapped her up in a blanket, stuffed her down the hole of the outhouse, and then left the baby in a box on the toilet seat, and then put the stepdad in the chicken coop. Whoa. Yeah. Yep. And there's lots of pictures. Uh, I'll try to get my hands on some of them for the Instagram, but pictures of like investigators and reporters when they found the bodies. Oh my God. So Carol Ann Fugate the girlfriend. She says that when she arrived home, he was there with a gun and told her that her family was being held hostage by like his gang or whatever. (laughs) I don't know who was holding them hostage, but uh, he told her that they're being held hostage and that they would remain safe if she did what he said. So So he, so she was his hostage too. According to her. Yes. Oh, according to her. Right. So they stayed in the family home for six days, turning away anyone who came by. Carol would tell people when they came to the door that everyone in the house was sick with the flu. She also posted a note on the front door to that effect, which there are many photos of, and I'll find those as well. Mm. A number of people came by over the six days, including Barbara, her sister, Charles's brother, and people were obviously growing suspicious. And on the sixth day, I believe it was the grandmother came by and they refused her entrance like everybody else. And she said, like, if you don't let me in, I'm going to call the cops. And she wouldn't let them in. And so after she left, they fled. Because I guess you don't mess with Nana. (laughs) Yeah, jeepers. So they fled to Bennett, Nebraska. They were in Lincoln, by the way. So, Uh, so far, he's killed four people. Yes. Okay. Yeah. 
So they took Charles Starkweather's car. They drove to the farm of one of his family friends, a 70-year-old man named August Meyer. Charles and his father had gone hunting with him over the years, and they had a nice, friendly relationship, far as I can tell. The car got stuck in the mud of his laneway, so they walked the rest of the way up the driveway. Charlie shot August Meyer in the head and also killed his dog. In fact, he beat the dog so violently that he broke his shotgun. Oh, my God. Yeah. So they rifled through the house looking for valuables and firearms because he broke his gun. And uh, presumably he found another gun, considering what happened. So from there, they set out on foot. And two nice teenagers stopped to offer them a ride. I know, big mistake. Carol King and her boyfriend, Robert Jensen. Um, I forget how old they were, but they were young, like they're in high school. At gunpoint, he forced them to drive them to an abandoned storm cellar in Bennett, Nebraska. Charles Starkweather then shot the boyfriend, I think it was six times in the back of the head. And Carol Ann claimed that he raped Carol King and then killed her. She was found shot and stabbed with her genitals, stabbed and like mutilated. They oh. crap out of her hoo-ha. And Starkweather said that it was Fugate that killed her. Huh. Carol Fugate, this is confusing because there's two Carols in this. <laughs> but the girlfriend claims that she stayed in the car the whole time. But she did say that he'd raped this woman or this girl. Good God. I know. It's like fucking gruesome, man. It is gruesome. I actually, <laughs> I was researching this and then got on the phone with my therapist for my weekly chat. And I was mm-hmm. like, you know, I'm researching Charlie Starkweather right now. And I know that I am not that crazy because this man was fucking nuts. <laughs> like, Oh yeah. I'm, I'm okay. Jesus Christ. Well, yeah. I mean, geez, this is, it's, uh, yeah. Anyway, it's heavy, right? Like it's, crazy. yeah. So then the pair drove to a wealthy area of Lincoln, Nebraska and entered the home of C. Lauer and Clara Ward. He tied up and stabbed Clara and her maid Lillian in separate bedrooms and stayed in the home until Lauer, were, Lauer Ward it's a hard name to say, Lower Ward, Lower Ward, until Lower Ward returned home, at which time he shot him right there at the front door. Again, he said that Fugate was responsible for killing one of these women, saying she'd stabbed Clara numerous times. He admitted to throwing a knife at Clara, but said that Fugate really sealed the deal. And he also killed their family dog by breaking its neck. Good Lord. I know. So then they stole the Ward's car, a 1956 Packard, if that means anything to you, which Whatever it was, it was like a big fancy car at the time. These people were pretty wealthy. So they fled Nebraska in their car with stolen jewelry. And then, so the murders of the wards and their maid, whose last name was Fency, Lillian Fency, the murders obviously caused a big uproar because not only was it unusual for there to be, you know, more than one murder in a year in this place at that time, But they were rich. And if you look at, like, typically victims of murderers are, like, from marginalized parts of society, right? right? Yeah. And these were wealthy people. Yeah. Pretty Huge big story. 
Huge story. Yeah. Officers were going house to house searching for the perpetrators in Lancaster County. The Lincoln chief of police called for a block by block search of the city. They called in the Nebraska National Guard. Huge deal. And apparently the police were criticized pretty widely afterwards because there were quite a few sightings reported of Fugate and Starkweather, but they weren't able to catch them. Oh, but, it's kind of like um, in the 30s when if you wanted to get um, get away with bank robbery, you just had to, This is I'm stealing this joke from John Mulaney, you just had to not be there when the cops showed up. Right. And then you would have gotten away with it. <laughs> right, right. But also, I can see how they wouldn't be equipped to deal with this. This oh, no. isn't something that happened at that time, you know, in that place yeah. in America. Yeah. And they're probably just as scared as everybody else. I mean, I, I watched a couple of programs and listened to a podcast and, you know, people talk about being kids and going home from school and their parents saying, you cannot play outside. You know, like people are staying in their houses. Anyone who had a gun, it was loaded. And if they had an extra gun, they were giving it to a neighbor who didn't have a gun. Like people Whoa. were, scared. people were terrified. Absolutely. Because he was, it was, there was no rhyme or reason. Like he was just killing everyone he came in contact with. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. So at this point, Charles was concerned about driving this big fancy boat of a car. He thought it looked, what's the word? Ostentatious. That's not the word, but that's a good word, Liz. (laughs) Thanks. Too too obvious, too sticky-outy. Yeah, too sticky-outy. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And at this point, they were in Wyoming and it had Nebraska plates. So they figured that would tip off the authorities. So they're on the prowl for a new vehicle. Enter traveling salesman Merle Collison. The poor guy was sitting in his car. Well, he probably was reclined. He was in his car on the side of the road having a nap because he was a traveling salesman. So he was he sleeping was in driving. Car. Yeah. On the highway outside of Douglas, Wyoming, which coincidentally is where the jackalope was born. Tune in to episode 25 to learn more. <laughs> <laughs> Douglas, Wyoming. So they shot Merle and took his car. Oh. And Charles again said that it was Carol. Whoa. And in fact, he referred to her as the most trigger happy person he ever met. But I'll get more into this. Okay. A little bit later. But so, she's, she's saying that she's the only there. Like she's like a hostage. Yes. Okay. So then they ran into a little snafu because Collison's car had a parking brake. And Charles had not ever encountered a car with a parking brake. So when he tried to drive the car away, he got it started, but then it stalled. Mm, and a passing classic. motorist, a passing motorist whose name I have heard, but I didn't write it down. He did survive. He stopped to help. And then, of course, they threatened him with a rifle and there was some sort of altercation. But a deputy sheriff happened to be in the area and happened to arrive on the scene with all the craziness going on. So Carol Ann then ran from the car that they were in zigzag like to avoid being shot, she ran zigzag to the police vehicle, hopped in and was like, that's Charles Starkweather and he is going to kill me. Oh. Starkweather then drove off in the uh, Ward's car. So then he drove off super fast, exceeding 100 miles per hour, which is 160 kilometers per hour. Oh, yeah. Very fast. There was a chase, obviously. The police were after him. A bullet shattered his windshield, and he sustained some superficial injuries. So he had a cut on his ear, and I forget where the other one was, and then stopped and surrendered. And um, the Converse County Sheriff, Earl Heflin, said, quote, unquote, 
He thought he was bleeding to death. That's why he stopped. That's the kind of yellow son of a bitch he is. <laughs> yellow means cowardly. Yes, I had does. to look it up because I was like, yellow? What? <laughs> <laughs> you didn't know that yellow meant cowardly? I guess not. Oh, amazing. I love it. <laughs> I'm going to start using that. It's better if you say yeller. 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 Yeah, he's a yeah. yeller bellied. I also read that Starkweather was out of ammunition and Charles Starkweather later said that if he hadn't run out of ammunition, they never would have got him. Oh, big talk. Mm-hmm. But you have to think about the fact that they were teenagers and there's one of the shows that it, like, I don't remember what I watched. I watched and read and listened to a bunch of stuff about this, but one of the shows they were talking to someone who knows about brains and stuff and who's saying, you know, when you're a teenager, your frontal lobe, is not fully developed like teenagers because their brains aren't fully developed can't like look into the future they can't see consequences uh they lack foresight am i making sense oh you're making 100 percent sense and i'm just thinking of like does that all extend sh- into your 20s too all the crazy shit you used to do <laughs> oh god yes <laughs> do you think your frontal lobe is done cooking yet liz I hope so. I think so. I mean, it must be. All I do is worry about the future now. So (laughs) it's overdeveloped. It's overdeveloped. It's my strongest muscle. (laughs) Your worry wart? (laughs) My worry wart muscle. It's my strongest one. Okay. So at the trial, Charles Starkweather refused to use an insanity plea. He had lawyers who were trying to help him. They were trying to keep him from getting the death penalty. And what's funny is he went to Nebraska. I had read in one place that the cops extradited him to Nebraska because the Wyoming governor at the time was against the death penalty and they wanted him to fry. Oh. And then I read in another place that Charles Starkweather made the choice to be tried in Nebraska, not knowing that the governor was against the death penalty, but who knows? There's a lot. It's pretty interesting how much information on this stuff is mixed up on the internet. Like mm. the Wikipedia article on Charles Starkweather there were a couple of details that were different from the Wikipedia article on Carol and Fugate. <laughs> I was oh. like, come on guys. <laughs> I mean, I know it's like crowdsourced, but come on. Did nobody yeah. read these? Like anyway, just do it. I didn't watch the movie. <laughs> I did. It you taught did. me nothing. <laughs> it taught you nothing. <laughs> okay. So at his trial, he refused to use an insanity plea. And when his defense team suggested that his IQ was just a few points above like idiot level, he was visibly upset and agitated. He didn't want people to think he was crazy or stupid. He wanted people to think he was in his right mind. And I don't know. He had pride. I guess he had a lot of pride. Yeah. Which sort of makes sense. Like if this all culminated from him being mercilessly bullied, then I could see how he was, how he would then want to stand up for himself in that way i don't know yeah I guess. not that i not that i like sympathize with this guy but it kind of yeah. makes sense it does but there are people who are bullied who don't then go on murder sprees that's true they don't that's become true free. there are people who <laughs> Thank are bullied god who can you imagine if everyone killers. who was bullied went and killed people <laughs> it'd be rough it would a lot of bullies yeah. out there so he was very unhelpful to his defense team He was convicted of first-degree murder for the murder of Robert Jensen. And strangely, that was the only one he was tried for. But he was sentenced to death. Uh, And he died. Why was he only charged for one? I don't know. I don't know why. But that was the only one he was charged for. Hmm. Yeah. So he was sentenced to death by electrocution, died in the electric chair 17 months after the events. 
How old 20. was he? He was 20. Fuck. That's mm-hmm. bananas. So what happened to the girlfriend? The story here really is about the girlfriend, in my opinion. So Carol Ann Fugate. She always maintained her innocence, saying that she thought her family was alive and was being held hostage. And in fact, that she didn't even find out they'd been murdered until after she was incarcerated. Oh my God. I know. She wasn't provided with a lawyer until days in. After they questioned her, grilled her, they threw in a mental institution where she like watched people undergoing shock treatment. Like they were just doing everything to scare her and manipulate her. And she never once admitted to doing anything. She was there as a child who was taken hostage by a fucking crazy man. You know, that's her, that's her story. That's her story. So before she was appointed a lawyer, Sheriff Merle Karnov asked her if she wanted to see Starkweather, to which she replied, no, I never want to see him again in my life. And he made her write a note to Charles saying as much. And it was after that note was delivered to Charles Starkweather that he changed his story to include her in the murder. So initially he said she had nothing to do with it. And then after he received this note that the sheriff made her write, he said that she was trigger happy and that she you know, named various murders that she'd participated. So he basically was mad. That's what it sounds like. And so I I imagine it was the combination of the note and the fact that she ran away from him and turned him in. Right. Then that's why he was, he was mad. So he was getting back at her. That's what it seems like to me. I mean, obviously I'm an expert. (laughs) So she was found guilty of being an accomplice to first degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. And at the time of the trials, people were watching through the windows of the courthouse, gathered outside. The public wanted her, like, burned at the stake. She was dragged dragged through the media. And people were saying that if Starkweather's getting the chair, she should be sitting on his lap. Wow. It's really like anti-woman. I know. I know. And Judge Harry A. Spencer, who was the judge in this trial, he didn't believe she was being held hostage because he felt she had numerous opportunities to escape. However, did she not escape at the end? She did. <laughs> did she not? <laughs> like, uh, anyway, she was sentenced to life in prison at the Nebraska Correctional Center for Women in York, Nebraska. She was apparently a model inmate, so good that they would let her go into town, like unaccompanied. She would go into town and do like volunteer work and then come back. Oh my God. I know. Oh, the 50s. <laughs> While she was at the prison, she completed her eighth grade and got her high school diploma, which took 10 years because the way it was set up there at that time, they would only get like 35 minutes of lessons three times a week. So it took her 10 years to get her high school diploma. Holy fuck. So she didn't graduate high school until she was like 24, 25. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So she was released after 17 and a half years in prison in 1976. And actually, I I mean, it sort of didn't matter because she was out on parole but in 1976 her sentence was reduced due to her being a minor like some you know some law came in about minors and so they reduced her sentence after she was released she worked in a hospital and for the most part really avoided the media she did not have any interest in talking about what happened she married a man named frederick clare in 2007 he was a machinist and uh, he was a weather observer for a weather station So good, honest man, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) He knew about weather. (laughs) Stark weather. Oh, my God. So she married him in 2007 and changed her name to her last name to Claire, which I'm sure was in part to give herself some more privacy. Oh, yeah. Um, So then they're in the news again in 2013 
when they were in a serious car accident, it was a single vehicle collision and her husband died and she was very seriously injured, like both her legs shattered, one of her arms broken. And they actually didn't think she would make it, but she did. She's still alive today. Holy fuck. I know. And according to my calculations in her mid seventies, she's retired. Wow. So she has been back in the media very recently, which is, it's funny because I did not know this when I decided to research the Starkweather stuff for the podcast, like very, very recently, like last week kind of thing. Oh. Yeah. So there are a couple of folks championing for her exoneration. There's the Nebraska author and lawyer, John Stevens Berry, and the granddaughter of two of Charles Starkweather's victims, Clara and Laura Ward. Interesting. And her name is Liza Ward. So on Tuesday, February 18th, last week, her application to the Nebraska Pardons Board to be pardoned of her murder conviction was denied. Oh. Uh, Ward and Barry were among those who lobbied in her favor. Dave Ellis, the cousin of Carol King, argued, this I just found so ridiculous, and I found it written up in a couple of different places, so I just had to include it. Dave Ellis, the cousin of Carol King, argued that he believed Carol Ann Fugate killed his cousin because the type of injury suggested, quote-unquote, female rage. What? Because her genitals were mutilated. He thought that only a jealous woman could do that. Oh, my God. And this was a contemporary uh-huh. ruling? Yeah. Good God. Like, it's a person who said that in, like, 2020. Yes. Someone yep. said, oh, God. So Barry, uh, what did I say his name is? John Stevens Barry. So he's the Nebraska lawyer. He actually met Carolyn Fugate when she called into his radio show and they talked for several hours and he was absolutely convinced of her innocence. He wrote a book entitled The Twelfth Victim about Carol Ann. And then Ward, the granddaughter, has tirelessly researched archives. She's traveled to the places where all of these crimes happened. She's had a lot of uncomfortable conversations with people Uh, families of victims, people who were in the area at the time, people who knew Carol Ann and who knew Charles, all this stuff. And she says, there is no evidence that Carol was involved. Really? Mm -hmm. She was convicted on the basis of Charles Starkweather's testimony against her and the perception that she could have escaped. Right. That was it. it. Holy Hannah. So that's really insane. I know. So like how this Zodiac killer suspect guy couldn't get arrested and they could, uh, they could put her in jail <laughs> like or put her in prison. Oh yeah. Based on this like psycho killer. And well, say. she was, I mean, I suppose she was actually there. Like right. they could prove she was there at, at, at each time. Well, that is true. That is true. That, that's maybe the only other thing that she's got, but yeah, like a few days ago, JM and I were watching part of a movie and then we turned it off called The Changeling okay. with Angelina Jolie. And um, it's like a Clint Eastwood movie. Like he directed mm-hmm. it. And basically she is a single mother in Los Angeles in like 1928. And her son goes missing when she's at work for the day. And she tries to find him. And they claim, the cops claim that they found him somewhere in the Midwest and that he's been with a drifter for several days or like four months, I think. And then when they bring him back to Los Angeles to reunite them, she's like, um, that's not my son. (laughs) And they're like, yes, it is. He just looks different to you because he's been, you know, with this drifter for four months. And she's like, it's actually not my son. 
Um, it's all based on a true story, this movie. And so, you know, like he's not the right height. He isn't circumcised and her son was and like all this stuff. The cops are so eager to close the case and to be like, no, we, fa- we successfully found your son that they said she was crazy and they put her in an institution. Oh my God. But it yeah. wasn't her son. Yeah. I mean, this woman lies a word. That's a lot of what she talks about is how they're taking the word of this man instead yep. of this like 14 year old yep. child. Yeah. And there was, there was nothing, his testimony was it. So they were just taking his word over hers because he yep. was a man and because totally. the public wanted her dead, basically. Yeah. Because they were like, you were with them, you had to be involved, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And all that female rage, you know? All that female rage. That's so, the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. I know. So Liza Ward, she talks a lot about how Fugate was a victim of the fear and anger of the time. And she says, why believe this man who's murdered all these people? over this girl. Why? Oh my God. Why? Right. It doesn't make any sense. So there's a YouTube video. If people are interested, I didn't find it dry. I thought I would because <laughs> it's very like no frills. It's just like in this law office and they're sitting at a table, but it's actually pretty interesting. The YouTube video is called the innocence of Carol and Fugate in the Starkweather murders. And it's with these two individuals, John Stevens Barry and Liza Ward going over the evidence and also Liza Ward just talking about her journey and why she did this and why she's still doing this. Right. Um, She basically feels that it's her duty as the victim's granddaughter to get the truth out, to try to help like heal some generational trauma growing up. Nobody in her family would talk about the events or talk about the case. And she said when she was researching it, she almost felt like she was having an affair with the crime because she couldn't tell anyone about it. Whoa. That's really interesting. You know, and she talks a lot about how we're in this period of truth right now, truth movement, and how now, like now is the time to get the truth out there. And she wants the world to be a safer place for young women and girls. Right. Uh, oh, that's, that's, that's amazing. The fact that she's the um, rel- relative of a victim. Yeah. Isn't it? It's kind of incredible. And she was talking yeah. about how like upsetting, you know, obviously it was upsetting for her father whose parents were murdered, that she's getting into all of this. And he's like, why do you want to do this? But she said, it's gotten to the point where he tells her, you know what, I'm really proud of you for doing this, which is sort of touching. And, and maybe she is healing some of that generational trauma. She also talks yeah. about how you see more contemporary cases like Elizabeth Smart, where yes. girls are kidnapped and kept hostage and they go along with their captor. Yep. And they do what they need to do to stay alive. Mm-hmm. We've seen concrete examples of this more contemporarily. He used to walk the man who kidnapped Elizabeth smart and repeatedly raped her. And she like lived in the mountains and then he took her and he was like building this like group of crazy women who were like a cult. He used to walk her around town in a disguise and she didn't run away because she was terrified. Yeah. Yeah. And that's and people use that against her. Another interesting note, it's sort of unrelated, but her family actually spent summers at the house where her grandparents were murdered. And she never knew until she was an adult and like looking into all of this. Whoa. Can you imagine her father like taking his kids there? That must have been so painful. I don't know why they would do that. It's yeah, crazy. It's a bit odd. Maybe they couldn't sell it. Maybe like, just because of the I don't know. It's wild. Um, and then, so John Barry talks about how, and I liked this quote, so I wrote it down, how Carolyn Fugate was good old Boyd right into the pen. So at the time, police just wanted to get them locked up no matter what it took. And that was sort of the attitude in policing at the time. Like a lot of this was just a product 
of the time. Right. They just were like, okay, case closed. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Done and done. Yes. So I have one more thing to say about Carolyn Fugate. And then um, I have a couple quick stories from my uncle. So 1983, it was the 25th anniversary of the murders. And so it came back up in the media. Carol Ann Fugate had been out of prison for a while at this point. And she'd sort of like it had kind of the attention had dwindled, right? Like initially media were kind of trying to track her down and get her to talk and she didn't want to talk. And they were trying to talk to her neighbors. And for the most part, you know, they all were like, listen, as long as she's not getting into trouble, it's none of our business. Like, it sounds like people were actually pretty supportive of her in her life, but it was the 25th anniversary. It was all over the news again. And so she contacted F. Lee Bailey, who had a show on TV called Lie Detector Test. So she was hoping to clear her name. He, on the other hand, wanted to have her on to like prove her guilty because <laughs> it would be like great ratings, right? So they performed the Lie Detector Test three times and she passed hands down, everyone. Interesting. She's also undergone, and this is according to John Barry, I guess he writes about it in his book, but she's undergone a number of different types of like psychoanalytic procedures, deep hypnosis, stuff like that. And everything has come back to say that she's innocent and telling the truth. And also probably wildly traumatized. Yeah. Can you imagine? Uh, Her whole family was killed and she had to witness the murder of like however many other people. And I read an article, actually, my uncle, because he knew that I was working on this, sent me a link to an article from like two days ago, talking about how her pardon was denied. And, you know, she just said, I I just can't bear it. Like, I don't want to bear this anymore. It's pretty sad that she didn't get her pardon. Anyway. Okay, so I promised you stories. Are you ready? Let's hear them. (laughs) They're pretty wild. My dear Uncle Woody. So I emailed him to say, like, I remember you saying there's some story about, like, someone at your school thinking that you were the murderer of Charlie Starkweather. Can you, like, clarify the details on that? And so he emails back and says, well, there was a bit more to it than that. (laughs) So they were the same age. They both wore what my uncle called granny glasses, which was peculiar at that time. He says only nuns wore them in that era. So they were, like, wireframe Oh, yeah. I saw the picture of uh, Charles Starkweather. So having that name, I'm now quoting my uncle. So having that name and looking as I did, except I was much taller, it was the midwinter break between semesters, and I decided not to go home, but to stay and work out in the pool for the two weeks. So really, I could have been anywhere. And the other Charles Starkweather was on the loose, too. Anyway, my first inkling that someone might get confused over my name happened when I went into town in Clinton, New York, to buy some groceries. I needed to cash a check, and when I handed the check to a person in the store, she looked at it, saw the name, went dead white, and ran from the room. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) And then he says, then, yes, there was a police car that appeared on the campus, and I heard that someone on the faculty, and they'd never tell him who, (laughs) called the dean and said, Starkweather's in trouble. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. This is the kicker. You're not going to believe this fucking story. Oh, my God. Hopefully, he's not upset with me for sharing it. Oh, my God. I'm on the edge of my seat. (laughs) You should be. I was a freshman that year and had pledged to join a fraternity, a local fraternity called the Emerson Literary Society. That first week after winter break, it was the tradition at all fraternities to engage in the shenanigans that we called Hell Week. Mostly, we freshmen cleaned up the house, gathered firewood, and engaged in a lot of silly contests. 
At dinner one night, and with the thought in mind that Charles Starkweather was still on the loose, I carried out a really dreadful practical joke. I borrowed a starter's pistol from one of my fellow swimmers and arranged with one of the sophomores to go along with the joke. After dinner, I stood up, clinked on my water glass to get everyone quiet, announced that I was Charles Starkweather and had learned to hate some of the sophomores during Hell Week, pulled the pistol out of my pocket and pointed it at the sophomore I'd prearranged to participate and pulled the trigger. The pistol went off with a very loud bang and my sophomore accomplice obligingly fell off his chair onto the floor. I looked menacing. Everyone in the room jumped up and ran out in a panic, literally scared for their lives. (laughs) Oh my God. Afterwards, I was genuinely and deeply ashamed of myself for scaring everyone so badly. I never pulled a practical joke of any kind after that. Good God, that's insane. I know. I I told my father and he's like, Woody never told me that story. I can see why he didn't. That's awful. He should never have done that. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's insane. He could have, like, if that happened now, he would have been like arrested or something. They probably would have thrown him out of the school. Oh, yeah, 100%. <laughs> and so uh, the last little bit that Woody said is he went home after the semester ended and he was chatting with his mom about the events of the few months previously. And the real Charles Starkweather by, by that time had been apprehended. And he says, mom said, I knew all along it wasn't you. Somehow her choice of words caused me to conclude that in fact, she had thought it might've been me. (laughs) (laughs) I knew it wasn't you. I knew all along. What an insane story. I know. It's crazy. I could write a dissertation. I'm telling you, I could like, I could go and go and go on this thing, but I have to stop because I have other things to do. (laughs) Right? Yeah. That's bananas. Great job. That was fascinating. Thank you. Great job to you. Oh, thank you. I wish that the, my favorite murder ladies weren't already doing this so that we could just do it more often, but (laughs) yeah, it's kind of fun. I like it. I know. (laughs) Although I was, I, I would say I was deeply disturbed doing the research actually. Oh, I wasn't so deeply disturbed. I maybe should be, but I wasn't. (laughs) You know, I mean, it's not that a dog's life is worth more than a human life, but something about like a person who kills children and like pets, it's just so extra, you know? Yeah, those are pretty bad. The dog thing's upsetting for sure. And it's, I mean, obviously the people thing is super upsetting. Oh, that's not upsetting um, at all. It's all about the dog. <laughs> <laughs> the The animal things are always upsetting because they're like such innocent bystanders. Yeah. Yeah. Liz, before we sign off, yeah. I have two questions. Okay. One is what have you been listening to? And two is what are your social media links so people can follow you? Aha. Uh-huh. Yes. Hmm. So um, I would say that in terms of what I've been listening to, I've been listening to Monster, the podcast on serial killers. Mm-hmm. The other thing I've been listening to, which is super nerdy and I'm kind of ashamed to say it, but whatever. Oh, do when I was know. Kid, it's an audio book. <laughs> and when I was a kid, I read these books on like Arthurian England. They were like historical novels that took place at like year 500. And they were about like Arthur and Merlin and Guinevere, but they were um, like real, quote unquote. They didn't have any mystical elements to them. Oh, okay. And so I read them a lot and I loved them. And so now that same author in the last like 15 years or so since I've last picked him up has written a bunch of books about 
the Viking invasions of England in like the 1100s or like the 900s. And it's more fictional, uh, historical fiction. And they're super nerdy. And I've been listening to them on audiobooks. That sounds fun. (laughs) They're good, but they're like very... Oh god, there's lots of battle scenes and like wenches and Is stuff. there romance? There's some romance, but Sweet. it's all very like perfunctory. Cuz sometimes sometimes there's real romance, but then other times there's just like Vikings raping and pillaging. Like mm. it's it's very over the top and dramatic and it's moderately embarrassing, but I've been listening to those audiobooks. <laughs> I think it sounds fun. <laughs> it is pretty fun. It's entertaining. What about you? What have you been listening to? Have you heard Orville Peck? No. Orville Peck. He's a Canadian, like, queer hipster cowboy guy. <laughs> Not ringing any bells. <laughs> and he wears a mask, like always. So if you Google Orville Peck, the thing that comes up right underneath, so you know how it has, like, suggestions for what you mm-hmm. want to Google. So there's Orville Peck, and then immediately underneath is Orville Peck face. Because he wears a mask. Like in all of his videos, all of his performances, public appearances, everything. And it's like a leather mask that covers the top portion of his face, often with a very long fringe that covers his mouth. I'm just looking at it right now. Are you Googling him right now? Air fine. But he's openly queer. And maybe it's extra like snowflakey of me to be like, that makes him extra badass and cool. But I think it does. And so, has anyone ever seen his face? Yes, you can find it if you Google Orville Peck face. <laughs> He's handsome. I think his most popular song, it's called Dead of Night. Mm-hmm. It's very good. Is he a country singer? Sort of. It's country in the sense that it's like theatrically cowboy. Right. Whoa. You're right by my side. You wake me up. You say it's time. Yeah, I kind of love it. I know. In the dead of night, strange canyon road, strange look in your eyes. You shut them as we fly. As we fly. I keep putting his music on. I'm like, do I love it? Do I hate it? But I keep playing it. It's like when you eat something and you're like, I don't think I like that, but I have to put it in my mouth again, just to be sure. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean, though? Interesting. Yes, I do. (laughs) I feel like I've had a lot of candies like that where I'm like, I don't, I don't like that, but mm, let me just try one more time. (laughs) His eyes look really crazy in the mask with the flash. Yeah. Insane. And he's Canadian. Isn't that cool? Yeah, that is cool. <laughs> oh, boy. That's what yeah, I've I'm been listening to lately. Face. I don't see any face pictures. Oh, you'll find it. You'll find it. If you dig hard. Right. So, Liz, do you have anything you want to promote? Just my social media, you know, L-I-Z-Z-O-U-S. Liz Ouse on Instagram. Isn't, and it my, with, isn't there an E? L-I-Z-Z-O-U-S-E? Oh, my God. Yes, I spelt my own thing wrong. <laughs> L-I-Z-Z-O-U-S-E, Lizhouse. That's my Instagram handle. And uh, my website is lizography.com. I'm a portrait photographer. Yeah, go check it out. What about you, Mel? I'm at melodystarkweather.ca. I 
believe my Instagram for my art stuff is M Starkweather Art. Hmm. If you just look up Melody Starkweather, or if you go to my website, all the social media links are there. I should know this. <laughs> this is the worst. I, I like send an email out to guests every time we have a guest on saying like, know your social media handles. <laughs> yep. I don't know mine. I spelt mine wrong. We are so good at this. Yeah, we're amazing. Yeah. <laughs> we're really giving uh, Karen and Georgia a run for their money, you know? Yeah, I think we are. I, I think, think we are. I think we are. And <laughs> do you like our show? Do you like our show, listeners? If you do, please subscribe, rate, and review the show. Please, 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 please. Do it. And you can also go over to patreon.com slash teach me tiger podcast to donate a couple of bucks. And that gets you access to all of our bonus episodes. And we're on social media. Look us up. Yeah, Especially man. Instagram, because that's where I do all the social media stuff really is Instagram. But actually, there is a group called Teach Me Tigers on uh, Facebook. And uh, sometimes we go there to ask people about like show ideas or guests or um, just to share fun stuff. So you could sign up for that too. That would be cool. But anyway, give us all your money. Give us all your money. Thank you to our patrons. Woo! Um, anything else? No, I think we're good. Cool. Awesome. And remember, it's a jungle out there. Rawr! Rawr. Teach me, Tiger, how to tease you. Whoa, 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 whoa. Tiger, Tiger, I want to squeeze you. Whoa, 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 whoa. Nope. This sucks. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry.